Let's get right to it this week, people. I want to talk extremism this week and the growing danger that is related to it. It's a new brand of extremism. It's not just people having marches like the one in Charlottesville where khaki-dressed, button-down-dressed college students have torches. We're talking about the type of violent extremism that led to events like January 6th and the growing number of offenses, anti-Semitic offenses that are happening across the country. So I want to focus this week particularly on the conviction of Enrique Tarrio, the former head of the Proud Boys. He was sentenced to 22 years this week by Judge Timothy Kelly. It is the longest sentence for any of the January 6th defendants. Tario becomes the fourth Proud Boy to be convicted of sedition. And I want to just start with his resume because Mr. Tario is the face that you wouldn't expect to see on a group like the Proud Boys, but more and more now you are seeing these extremist groups in an attempt to hide their true motives in the Proud Boys case, white supremacy, having faces of color at the front. And so Enrico Tario is an Afro-Cuban. He was born and raised in Miami. He became the state director for Latinos for Trump in Florida, which is interesting because he had quite the criminal record before that. He was convicted of theft in the early 2000s, got community service and probation for that. And then later on in 2012, he was indicted and charged in a diabetic test strip reselling scheme that, you know, depending on which news reports you follow, led to him being an informant, a criminal informant uh, for law enforcement for many years. And then fast forward, 2017, he becomes a little bit more political in his efforts. He volunteers at an event with the far-right extremist Milo Yiannopoulos. And then in 2018, he becomes part of the Proud Boys, where his legend grows from there. He attends the Unite the Right rally that I mentioned in Charlottesville, and his words to protest the removal of Confederate monuments. And then, you know, he gets involved in the seditious conspiracy that leads to January 6th. And so I want to dig into some of the things that he said at the sentencing that particularly stick out for me as an educator. And what is the idea that he felt like in 2020, his candidate, so former President Trump losing, was a personal affront to him. He said he felt like something had been stolen from him. And then more importantly, he said that every media outlet he turned to said he was right and justified. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. But what strikes me is the idea of this entitlement that even though former President Trump lost by an overwhelming majority in the popular vote, this 
feeling that something was personally stolen, right? The entitlement that, well, of course, you know, given my efforts, my candidate is going to win. If only we could all be like that. And then the second piece of that quote, which I want to stick on for a little bit longer, is the idea that every media outlet he turned to told him he was right. And so this is, for me, very interesting because we have so many media outlets and you can basically follow whatever version of the truth you want in media these days. You can have, you know, all left-leaning media. You can have all right-leaning media if you want. There's conservative talk shows and podcasts. There are progressive and, you know, left-leaning podcasts. You can have whatever you want. And the trouble becomes that if you only rely on that and you have no balance, then you find yourself in these radicalized extremist moments. And so we have Enrique Tarrio who gets convicted. We talked previously about Harrison Floyd being convicted along with the other 19 defendants in the Fonnie Willis case. And these are people whose backgrounds might suggest that they wouldn't come to the conclusion that they would want to defend white privilege and white supremacy. But here they are. And so I want to talk about that a little bit more as it pertains to schools. But first, I will say, I rock with the sentence. 22 years, given that the judge could have given them 30 more under you know, the terrorism and sedition statutes. I'm fine with that. And I'm fine with it because January 6th was an unprecedented event. To watch that on television in COVID was something that I have never seen. I hope we never see it again in this country. The outright attempt and overthrow of our government and the peaceful transfer of power from one president to the next. And so I'm fine that all of these Proud Boy defendants who've been convicted on sedition have received double-digit jail sentences, whether they served them or not, because there has to be a deterrent or an accountability for when you go so far against the principles of the country. And so I rock with it for that reason. The other reason is that much like when the Ku Klux Klan was the, the preeminent hate group in the country, you have to find ways to make sure that hate groups cannot proliferate and continue to express their propaganda of hate unfettered. And these days, since January 6th, we have seen a continued rise of hate crimes, of hate incidents, and so my hope is that these sentences and people being held accountable will continue to send the message that it's not just one political party who wants to see justice being done, but it is, is a, a united front of the general population that says we want to continue to enjoy a free democracy in this country. We do not want to see a shift to an authoritarian government in this country.
So I am all for the sentences. And I hope that we continue to see in the coming months more justice, whether it's in the special counsel case in D.C. or the Fulton County case in Fulton County, Georgia, or the documents case in Florida, all of them. Because I believe you cannot have a message in this country that, depending on how much privilege you have, you can get away with flouting the law for your own personal goals, particularly when it comes to positions in government. So I'm going to stop there for a second and come right back and talk about what this means for schools in particular. All right, so laid out my case for why I'm not rocking with the violent extremism that we have seen in the country. I didn't even touch on the Nazi marches that are happening in Florida closely on the heels of black people being hunted in Florida. But I hope that in laying out the case for Mr. Tarayo, you get where I'm coming from and I won't need to dig further into those events. But they do lead me into what I think schools need to be aware of, school districts need to be aware of when it comes to how we think about educating our students in civics and social studies moving forward. It certainly glaringly points out that we can't get stuck in a certain frame of history that we are teaching. If we are not connecting what is happening currently to what we are studying from the past, then we're doing our students a disservice because we're not helping them make those connections between what is happening today and how it is reflected in the past. The cliche term is those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. But then there's also the piece where if you're not pointed out the lessons from history and the connections so that people can see what's coming down the pike, then it's just as bad. So when we think about the fact that there are book bans happening across the country, there are calls for more parental involvement and curriculum across the country, this is where I push back on that. Because if you are not allowing students to learn widely, primarily by reading and getting different contexts and being able to make connections and build those schema, as they call them, those webs and make those connections in the head, then, like Mr. Tario alluded to in his quote, you leave yourself open to become radicalized or turned into an extremist by only following one stream, one perspective of information. So for example, I'm an unabashed supporter, watcher, consumer of MSNBC. Does not mean that I take everything that I listen to and hear 
whole and without a grain of salt or that I don't interrogate the opinions expressed and the facts being presented to me and put them through a number of different lenses and perspective based on the blessing of an education that I've had. But more and more what's happening is that kids are being cut off in terms of that exposure to the perspectives. The second point that I want to make on that is that in addition to not having book bans, we shouldn't be limiting curriculum to such a small bandwidth that students are only thinking about, for example, this country in a particular way. Because, yes, there should be a certain nationalism that gets taught, a certain pride in and understanding of how our country works and why it is successful, why we are considered the leading country in the world. But at the same time, kids should understand our shit stinks too. There are initiatives that we've been involved in, continue to be involved in, that cause harm and destruction in the world and deserve critique. But then if you don't point those things out, then it leads to a certain elitism that is false. Because what should be happening is that there should be a connection to the way that other countries have drama and conflict and struggle, we have struggled to. So we can't demonize and critique countries that have extremist, violent, sleeper, sleeper organizations develop when we too have the same problem. And so that brings me to my last point, which is that not only should the curriculum be wide, but it should also be local. So what a, a, a student learns here in Southern California as it relates to local politics, current events, social studies, is different certainly than what a student should be or connecting to in Florida. Because at the end of the day, it is confusing to me how an Afro-Cuban American could cape and stand for a political movement with Donald Trump as the figurehead that was pushing for autocracy and a white supremacist agenda. And yes, everything that a person comes to understand and believe is not necessarily learned in school, but schools do play a part in breaking up the noise and at least planting the seed that everything you hear at home isn't necessarily fact. You can learn and be exposed to things that may blossom later and help you have a better understanding in school and schools should not be shrinking away from that responsibility. I'm gonna take a break there, come back in a sec.
before we get into the Dean's office and the honor roll this week, I do want to wrap up on a note of hope. And that is that as we have looked at the trials taking place in the wake of January 6th, so they have taken a while to unfold, we have continued to see convictions and people being held accountable, being held accountable by judges at both the state and federal level from both sides of the political spectrum. And so again, the signal to me is that there's a recognition that no matter what the political perspective, wrong is wrong, violence against our democracy is not something that would be tolerated, and that there are still unifying cords that hold us all together. And so what I hope is that as we continue to do the work to protect the democracy, we will continue to have the conversations within specific communities and between communities so that we become stronger and have a better defense against something like January 6th ever happening again. And perhaps the ending of violent hate crimes against traditionally other communities, LGBTQ communities, Asian communities, Jewish and black communities. But again, it will require each of those communities to have conversations, hard conversations, courageous conversations about the things that will unite them so that everyone can then come to the table, recognize each other's humanity and therefore find ways to unite against hate from all sides. Because when you hear about neo-Nazi rallies taking place in Jacksonville less than a week after three black civilians are killed by a white supremacist with an AR-15 with swastikas on his gun, that doesn't make you hopeful. It's actually quite scary. But the hope comes in the response, and I hope the response continues to be that people will find ways to recognize each other's humanity and protect one another. Let's get into the who's coming to the dean's office and the honor roll for this week, because I got a bunch. In the dean's office this week, I need to see Sheriff Patrick Labatt. Labatt is the chief officer in charge of the Fulton County jail system. And Fulton County Jail this week saw its 10th inmate pass away, 24-year-old Chandre Delmore. Again, 24 years old, found unresponsive in his cell, and later was pronounced dead after suffering cardiac arrest. Again, the 10th 
person to die in the Fulton County Jail in 2023, way ahead of the 2022 pace of 15 people to die in custody in the Fulton County Jail, one of them being LaShawn Thompson, who was eaten by bedbugs. His family later received a $4 million settlement. But the question is, what is going on in this jail that is effectively making it so that if you enter the jail for whatever reason, and in the case of Mr. Delmore, it was a nonviolent offense with a $5,000 bond, why does that then make it almost a death sentence? These are the questions that need to be answered by those running the Fulton County Jail, chiefly among them, Sheriff Patrick Labatt. Switching gears to the honor roll, I want to start with Coco Golf, who set the New York crowd on fire at the U.S. Open, winning her first Grand Slam title. Tender age of 19, the youngest to do it since Serena Williams, the GOAT, in 1999. She now joins Serena, Venus, Sloan Stevens in a growing sorority of black female U.S. Open singles champions. It was a hot summer for Coco Golf. She started off the year winning the ASB Classic in New Zealand. Then she won the DC Open in July, followed that up with the Western and Southern Open in Ohio in August, and capped it off beating Miss Sabalenka from Belarus in a three-set classic at the U.S. Open on the big stage. So salute to Coco Golf. Here's to many, many more. Love how you talk your stuff. Give people history lessons at the press conference podium. Keep it going. We expect to see and hope to see more and more victories from you and hopefully another appearance on All-American Homecoming. While we're on the U.S. Open, I also want to put on the honor roll American men's tennis player Ben Shelton, who made it to the semifinals of this year's U.S. Open before falling to arguably the men's GOAT Novak Djokovic in an entertaining semifinal at just 20 years old. That's quite an achievement on the men's side. Mr. Shelton looks like he's primed for a great career. Salute to his parents for keeping him on a path to develop slowly and gradually to this point where he can now step onto the scene after having a very accomplished junior's career, a college career at the University of Florida, and now a budding pro career. It just goes to show in the case of both Goff and Shelton and Francis Tiafo, who Shelton defeated in the corner finals, that when you allow access to sports that often have a very high financial hurdle, folks of color, athletes of color, can certainly thrive with the opportunity. And I hope that we continue to see it in both tennis, golf, swimming, and other sports that traditionally have been hard for certainly African-Americans to become a part of. That's all for this week. Thanks again for spending the time with me, taking a moment to hear my thoughts 
Hopefully you will subscribe, share with your friends, have a conversation based on what you heard, and we'll see you again next week to do it all again. Take care. The views expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties. Take no!